Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, I believe it's page 46 in your pew Bible. I had quite a scratchy throat in the first service. If it looks like I'm drinking enough water to someone who just ran a marathon, you'll know why. Uh, trying to get over a sickness, so I have to drink quite a bit. Um, a call to lead uh, is the ser- uh, title of the sermon you see there in your bulletin. Uh, we're electing officers today, elders and deacons, so it's kind of with that in mind. Uh, there's lots of passages we could go to. Uh, I chose this one. I think it applies. It's the call of Moses into ministry. Uh, it's learning the name of God. What did that mean? What did it mean to, to, to have God's name and to understand it? There was a testimony that was behind it. Uh, what does it mean for us who lead? How do we draw upon the power of God? Those are some of the things to keep in mind as we, as we go along this morning. Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read two sections, uh, begin, first, the first section beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now beginning in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning. We thank you for the life of Moses. Lord, thank you for his faith, but more importantly, thank you for the faithfulness that you show through him. Would you help us to realize that there is power in your name, power in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would trust that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is in a name? My name, my full name, is Andrew Lee Wyatt. Uh, It's a great name. 
But I must tell you that I'm a little bit dissatisfied in the reason that I was named. My name, I am named after a co-worker that my mom thought was funny. That, again, Andrew Lee Wyatt, nothing wrong with the name, just a little dissatisfying. I wish there was a better story. I was named after somebody that was a famous Andrew, but just not. My wife, also a little dissatisfied in her name. Her name is Lauren Eleanor Tote. That's her given name. She is a twin, and they thought that she was going to be a boy. The ultrasound was a little unclear, and so her sister came, or well, I guess she, she was born first, and lo and behold, she was a girl, not a boy, and her, the name picked out for her was Taylor, which her mom wanted to be, whether it was a girl or, or, her, or a boy, but her dad didn't realize that. And so she had, not to go into detail, but a complicated pregnancy. She was willed off to be tended to, and so they looked to dad, what's the name of the child? He had seen the name Lauren earlier in the day in the paper and said, <laughs> Lauren it is. Again, Lauren's a fine name, just some dissatisfaction in the story behind the name. Okay, We wish there was something better, something cooler that we could tell people. You know, in our culture, your name is not much more than just what people know you as, your label. Now, maybe you're named after a relative or maybe a reformer or, or someone else, and there is some meaning and significance behind your name. But for us in our culture, it's just the label. You know me as Andy, and it's not much more than that. That's just what you call me when you see me or when you might refer to me. In biblical times, names meant much more than that. Often in your name was tied your significance, your worth, your character. Sometimes, as in the case of Isaiah's children, there was prophecy that was tied up in their names. So when the people of God ask Moses, what is the name of the God by whose authority you're coming to us in, they weren't just asking for a word. They didn't just want to know what's the word we use when we refer to this God. They wanted to know something much more significant than what we think of when we think of a name. They're asking for God's testimony. They're asking for what authority, Moses, are you coming to us in? What, what's the testimony? What legitimacy do you have or does this God have? And it was necessary for Moses to understand this before he was ordained and installed, in a sense, into his office as the deliverer of Israel. <coughs> you see, God's calling Moses to do something pretty significant, isn't he? He's calling him in a confrontation with Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time. He's calling Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. He's calling him to lead them in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Of course, he doesn't know that at this point. But inevitably, there were many lessons that Moses needed to learn to equip him for this kind of leadership. But before he learned those lessons, he needed to know who this God was that was calling him and that he was to serve. What power does he have? What's his testimony? What's this God all about? Well, God was going to tell him that before he put him into ministry. So God calls Moses, and he's calling many of us to lead his people in his church. Because of this, there are many lessons that we must learn and understand before we can be effective leaders in the kingdom of God. So let's look at this passage in three ways, these kind of chapter and a half. <coughs> the first point being the call of God and the ministry of Moses. At the end of chapter 2, Moses has fled to the wilderness of Midian. <coughs> People are trying to kill him. He's just killed an Egyptian man who was giving a hard time to an Israelite man. Moses had tried to be the kind of deliverer that he thought he was supposed to be. So he's in Egypt, he's tending sheep. Excuse me. 
Moses is tending sheep. He's in his leadership training program, if you will. And this leadership training program is going to last for 40 years. Not a couple of weeks, not a few months. It's not a weekend training seminar. It's 40 years. And every step of the way, Moses is being humbled. He's just left the riches, the grandeur of Egypt. He was someone significant there. And now he's tending sheep. A life of humility. Anybody who's been in ministry for very long knows that humility is something that is mandatory to lead the people of God. If we think (coughs) and we have pride and we're going out on our own strength and based on our own gifts, then we are doomed to fail. So Moses is tending sheep. Lo and behold, he looks out and he sees a burning bush. (coughs) This bush is consumed in flames. There's a Hebrew participle used. If you know participles, they denote continuous action. So this bush is engulfed in flames, but it's not being consumed. It's not going away. Now, we can draw a few conclusions from this. We know that a pillar of, of fire is what, uh, where God's presence was. We'll see that later in the wilderness wanderings. But it also could be communicating. This is kind of the state of affairs for Israel right now. They're in Egypt. They're being consumed, but they're not being burned up. Or maybe God's communicating that this, they're spending a time of, refi- of being refined, just as Moses is in the wilderness as well. <clears throat> No matter what, God is obviously revealing himself to Moses in a supernatural way. This was an unusual scene, this burning bush, of course. But before God gives any directive to Moses, he's got to tell him who he is and what his testimony is. I am the God who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I called them to follow me. Moses, I'm doing the same to you. You know all the promises? Of course Moses knew these promises. You know all the ones that you've heard about from your people? They're they're just as true for you. The same ones are true. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. Israel's still my people. You can be confident in that, Moses. In verse 7, he says, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I'm going to come and deliver them, just as I said that I would. Just as I promised Abraham back in Genesis 15, that they're going to have to be in uh, slavery for 400 years, (coughs) and then I will deliver them. I'm going to get this in a minute. I'm going to find my rhythm in just a minute. (laughs) The call of God upon Moses' life is preceded by Moses knowing the God who was calling him. God is ordaining and installing Moses to ministry, as I mentioned. Is Moses perfect? Of course he's not. He's an imperfect vessel just like you and me who were called into leadership. But the success of the plan did not rest upon Moses. It rested upon God. The plan was going to work because of God and his divine eternal covenant. As leaders, we are important, but we're vessels. We're jars of clay. Yes, we're meaningful and useful to the mission, but it's not upon us that the mission rises and falls. It succeeds or fails. In Genesis chapter 15, God declares that Abraham's descendants would be sojourners of land that was not theirs for 400 years, and then they would be delivered. It was going to happen. And God's saying, Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. And it's not going to be because you're cool and you're hip and you're eloquent and you can do all these things. It's because of me, but I'm using you. And he's telling us the same thing. Those of us who lead, I don't need you, but I'm using you. The success isn't hinging upon you, but you're the instrument that I'm using. So humble yourselves so that I might use you. 
officers being nominated today, do you understand this calling? Leaders in the church, do you understand this calling? You have been called. The success of the plan is secure. We are marching to Zion. Salvation is certain in Jesus Christ, but he has called us to disciple and to shepherd and to evangelize and to lead. Are you going out in the confidence of all that you've done? (coughs) Are you going out in the confidence that you have the power of the name of Christ? Our call is to boldly lead in worship and discipleship and intercessory prayer. Our call is to be faithful. Our confidence in the ministry of First Perez going forward in the days and months and years to come is because we trust in a covenant God. Moses had to be certain of this before he went forward or everything was doomed to fail. So secondly, the call of God and the fear of Moses. So God miraculously appears to Moses. He tells him what he wants to do. He gives him his testimony and Moses says, great, when do I start? Let's get going. No, that's not what Moses says. (laughs) In verse 11, we see the first of five objections or questions that Moses lobs back at God, if you will. The first, he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is Moses' initial response. Who am I? Well, it sounds humble enough, doesn't it? Maybe Moses has got this humility thing down. Well, if this was the only objection, maybe we would think Moses was being humble, but it's not. In verse 13, he wants to know, what's the name that I give the people? Chapter 4, verse 1, well, but God, but what if they don't believe me? Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, I've never been eloquent. You can't send me, I'm not eloquent. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 13, he stops beating around the bush and he says, please send someone else. <laughs> like, all this other stuff, is, really the point is, I don't want to go and do this, God. Send somebody else. I'm not up to the challenge. It leads me to believe in chapter 3, verse 11, he wasn't being humble at all. He was afraid. When he understood the arduous task that God was calling him to, he wanted nothing to do with it because he was afraid. He's questioning the mission. He lacks confidence in God. On the one hand, Moses knew that he couldn't accomplish the task, which of course was good, but he thought his own strength and ability had to accomplish the, attack, to accomplish the task. He knew that he couldn't, but he wasn't willing to trust God. He thought he was going to have to conjure it up in himself to go out and to carry out God's plan. So now Moses is examining every escape route possible to get out of this call of God. You know, for many many of us, the posture of Moses is completely relatable here. (coughs) It makes sense. We don't think we have what it takes to be a leader in the kingdom of God. I'm not, I'm not enough of this. I'm not enough of that. I'm not charismatic enough. I can't teach well enough, or at least not as well enough as the guy over there. I don't have enough gifts. I'm afraid. I have too many shortcomings, or at least these perceived shortcomings that you have. Everything's going to fail because I'm just not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not wise enough. Yep, this is a problem for us pastors, too. Or at least I should speak for myself. <laughs> We deal with this kind of fear all the time. I hope everybody likes me. I hope I'm doing a good job. I hope this sermon's not absolutely bombing. I hope that my voice is not absolutely annoying everyone. I hope that this tie went well with this suit like I thought it did when I put it on this morning. Am I talking too fast? Am I this? Am I that? It, you're constantly afraid of you, but it's, it's internal self-focus, not what is God doing through this. All these things come down to fear. All of it came down to fear for Moses. 
As leaders in the Church of Christ, we must be bold and confident in God, not fearful and timid. <coughs> yes, we look into the culture and we see all everything going awry, and we think fear is the right thing to do. Yes, this Judeo-Christian foundation that our nation was founded upon has completely eroded away, but we never trusted in that anyway. Are we trusting in God or are we trusting in ourselves to somehow bring it back? We're trusting in God to go forward in whatever plan he may have. There's reason to hope because we have power in the gospel, not in ourselves. Because what is Moses really saying in his words? God promised him in chapter 3, verse 18, the people will listen to your voice. (coughs) And in chapter 4, verse 1, several verses later, he says, no, God, they will not listen to my voice. Moses just didn't believe God. He didn't believe his words. He didn't trust in the promises of God. I just don't believe you're going to do what you say you're going to do, God. I'm going to live in fear rather than faith. That's what I want to do. Don't we do the same thing when we go out in fear? God, I just don't think you're going to be with me. I don't think you can bring this ministry to do good things and to, and to glorify you. I just don't think so. God, I know that I feel like I must change people's hearts, but I lack persuasion and eloquence. We're so often trusting in ourselves. The good thing is we know that we are lacking in ourselves, but we don't then look to the power of God. We think we've got to work it up in ourselves. Over and over again, God is trying to comfort Moses and remind him of his promises, and Moses is continually just not getting it. So lastly, the call of God and the confidence of Moses. After each objection, notice how God responds. In chapter 3, verse 11, Who am I that I should go? God responds, but I'll be with you. I mentioned the, what, uh, how Moses disbelieves in chapter 4, verse 1. He said, they won't listen to my voice, but God had already said that they would. Chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, but I'm not eloquent. Chapter 4, 11, and 12, God responds, but who has made man's mouth? Is it not I? I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what yourself speak. And then chapter 4, verse 13, Moses says, please send somebody else. And so God does. He sends Aaron to be the spokesman for Moses. <clears throat> At every point, God is with him, he's helping him, he's reminding him of who he is, reminding him of how he's going to be with him in his testimony. Leaders, elders, deacons, pastors, leaders of any kind, (coughs) we've got to daily remind ourselves of this. We are spokesmen, we are heralds, we have a message that we are to proclaim boldly, but the changing of the hearts, the end game, the success is up to God. We are to be bold. We are to loudly proclaim that he is good and that he saves us from our sins. But God does something even greater in chapter 3, verse 14. He gives his covenant name, as we've been talking about. What should I tell them, God? They're going to ask for a name. What should I say? So God declares to Moses in chapter 3, verse 14, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Dr. John Curran, in his commentary on this passage, says this. Really, the appropriate way to interpret this phrase is, I will be who I will be. But really, it's an eternal declaration of, I was, I am, and I will be. I am your covenant God, and I'll always be with you. This is God's eternal declaration. (coughs) 
In this name, God is saying, I'm self-existent, I'm above creation, I always was, I'm unchangeable, there's nothing, everything about me is unique. Nothing about me is normal in something you would see elsewhere. It's a testimony. I was with your forefathers, I'll be with you now, and I will always be with everyone who shall come, who's a part of the people of God. I'm not like any other gods. I'm better and greater than them, and he's going to show that in the ten plagues that come soon in Exodus. There is great power in the name of God, and the Israelites now know that name. There was power just in the name of God. <clears throat> I know I tell a lot of stories about uh, uh, Lauren and I, our pastor, when we were in um, Charlotte while I was in seminary at Christ's Covenant. was Mike Ross. <coughs> He'll be our uh, missions conference speaker coming in February. He's a graduate from Ohio State University. Uh, you'll have to forgive him for that uh, when you see him. I told first service, please tell him I said that. Although I guess they were happy yesterday. <clears throat> he has a great story about when he was a freshman at Ohio State. He was in the spring semester of his freshman year, and his parents called him and said, Son, we're very sorry, but we can no longer pay for college. Uh, we can't get a loan from the bank for any amount of money, so we're, I don't know what you're going to do, but sorry. Obviously, he was downtrodden and very sad. He's walking around campus at Ohio State, not knowing what he was going to do. He was on the quad there on campus, and he sat down on a bench, head in his hands, and he just was kind of moping, I guess. Someone came and put their hand on his shoulder and said, Son, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Leave me alone. No, son, are you all right? Tell me what's going on. And he looks up, and it's the head football coach, Woody Hayes. If you don't know Woody Hayes, it's kind of a Bear Bryantist to Alabama, what Woody Hayes is to Ohio State. Um, I don't know what the equivalent to Georgia would be. I hesitated even saying a coach because it might fend people. But anyway, <coughs> this was a big deal. The head football coach is walking around campus, and he puts his shoulder on Mike Ross, his hand on Mike Ross's shoulder. So he proceeds to tell him his story. I don't have money. I want to keep going to school, not thinking that Coach Hayes would do anything. And he looked at Mike and he said, you know that bank that's just off campus, just down there? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I want you to go down there and I want you to find the manager and I want you to tell the manager this whole story that you have just told me. And so he did. He went and told the manager everything that he had told Coach Hayes. But right before he left Coach Hayes, he said, and tell them Coach sent you. What? Yeah, just tell them. Just tell them that Coach sent you. So he went down to the bank, told them everything. He said, and by the way, Coach sent me. The bank gave him everything that he needed. Obviously, that wouldn't work today, but it did back in the 1970s when this happened, okay? <coughs> All that Mike Ross needed to tell the bank was that Coach sent him, and he co-signed this loan. Mike Ross got all the money that he needed, and he graduated from Ohio State. The bank tied to the name Coach was a testimony. He was good for it. There was character. There was something behind that name that had power and significance that, of course, Mike Ross did not have in himself, but Coach Hayes did have that. Do you believe this about your covenant God? That there was power in the very testimony of God, that there's power in Christ, just like Gary Leibovitz preached last week from Romans 1, chapter 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of Christ. There's power in the very words that we use. There's power in what we say to people when we share the gospel. Not in us and how great we say it and the way we construct our words, though that's important, but there's power in the very things that we say. It's a unique message. It's not just words. They're powerful words. Are you using that power? Do you believe in it? 
We could all go out here and street preach right now, and there will be power in the words that we use. I'm not asking you to do that, but I am asking you to boldly share your faith with other people, knowing that there's power when you do that. There's power in the things that you say. To your friends, your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors, the person that you run next to on the treadmill of the gym, would you share it with them? Do you need to be reconvinced that there's power in the gospel and that Christ is the Savior of sinners, that you are a sinful person who can do nothing for yourself, and that there are lost people that you know, that you come in contact with every single week that you need to tell that to, but you don't because you think it's up to you to change their heart. You think it's up to you to change their mind and to change everything about them, but you don't have the ability to do that. The power of the gospel does. It's like God looking at Moses and saying, did did you think you had the power and eloquence to change the mind of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and to lead two million people out? Did you really think it was up to you? For us, do you really think that you have the power to bring someone from spiritual death to life? Do you think you have to do that? Do you think you can remove someone's heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh? You can't. But the power of the gospel can through the power of Christ. The power is not in your words, in your eloquence, or in your illustrations. It's in the message that you, that you deliver, that you preach. So Moses objects in chapter 4, verse 10. <clears throat> he says, I'm not eloquent. And God said, well, who made man's mouth? For us, who made your mouth? Who did? He will be with you in your time of need if you would pray and ask that he would. You know, we want to rush in and be critical of Moses in this story, and there's a lot to be critical of Moses with. (laughs) He's fearful. He's uncertain. He did things wrong. He was insecure. He argued with God. Does that sound familiar to your own life? Don't you do the same thing? Moses is a chronically insecure person, and he spent 40 years in the wilderness learning how to lead God's people. But even still, he was insecure and wasn't certain Here's Dr. Currit again about Moses. We can feel Moses' almost overwhelming insecurity. Moses' position was, look, God, I'm just not up to the job. You shouldn't have picked me. And the Lord's reply was, of course you're not up to the job. I knew that when I chose you for it. The point is, is not your ability, but my ability. Moses' incapacity is balanced by the Lord's ability. In a nutshell, That is how matters stand, not just for Moses, but for always and in every situation of divine choice and call. The Lord does not call us because of our adequacy, nor is his presence conditional upon us becoming adequate. It's rather promised to those who are inadequate. When we tell God, but I'm inadequate for the task, he responds and says, I know, but I'll be with you. And this has got to be enough for us. It's got to be enough For us as we lead, for us as we share the gospel with the people we know, I know you're not good enough to do this. I'm not asking you to be. I'm asking you to do it, and I'll be with you. I'm asking you to do it, and I will change the heart, or I will plant the seed, or I will water the seed. But I'm asking you to do it and be my instrument. Let me close with this illustration. Uh, The story told of John Stott, and as I read this story, I can absolutely identify with John Stott at this particular moment. He was sharing uh, his faith with a group of university outreach, at a university outreach event in Sydney, Australia in 1958. 
Before the final meeting, Stott received word that his father had passed away. In addition to his grief, he was starting to lose his voice. He was very scratchy. He'd been sick for a few days. But he felt like he needed to finish this university outreach meeting before he headed home to be with his family. He came to his final address, and as he says, I preached on the broad and narrow way from Matthew chapter 7. And he said, I had to get within a half an inch of the microphone, and he says, I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any voice inflections. I was monotone. But then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response, larger than any other meeting during the mission, as students came flocking forward. I've been back to Australia about 10 times since 1958, he says, and on every occasion someone has come up to me and said, do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? And he says, I jolly well do. Well, they said, I was converted that night. Stott concludes that the Holy Spirit takes our human words spoken in great weakness and frailty, and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, the conscience, and the will of the hearers in such a way that they see and they believe. See that? The Holy Spirit carries your frail, your inconsistent, your not very well said, your could have been said a better way words, and he takes them to the heart and mind and the will of the hearers. He changes them, but he asks you to boldly proclaim the message. If we to fast forward to chapter 4, verse 31, the end of the chapter, Moses communicates the name of God to the people of God, and they listen to him, just like God said they would. People, the people believe in the name of God. They had received what they needed. You know, today, this morning, we've been proclaiming in the name of Christ. He's gracious, he's loving, he's great, he's majestic. Do you believe that there is power in his name? Do you believe that there's power in Christ? Do you believe that you have a message that's powerful for this world? Not in the way you say it, but just that you say it. And that you tell people. You know how God came into your life. We have, in this room this size, a m- bunch of different stories. <laughs> how you came to know Christ and your testimony. Some, it's these outrageous stories, a Damascus Road kind of experience. Some, it's plain and mundane and over time. But the power of the gospel came into your heart and you believed. And all you can say is, it's mysterious, but I was convicted of it. It's mysterious, but God used this person or this message or this event, and he came into my heart and made me believe it, and it was the power of the message that did it, not the winsome words of someone who convinced you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Leadership, officers of the church, do you need to be reconvinced of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not only for evangelism, but for shepherding, for discipleship, for everyday life, for around your dinner table this afternoon as you eat lunch together. There's power in that message, and it's power to change people. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe in all this. You're a skeptic or an unbeliever. We don't believe in power that we have. We believe that God has a power. This message has a power that changes people. And that, Lord willing, it's changed us. For Christians, do you need to be reminded and reconvinced of this anew and afresh today? Are you going forward in your own strength and own power? Or are you going forward in the power of God? Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us a message that's true and that's powerful. We pray that we would believe that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.